Let's read our text. Verse 9, chapter 9, they're coming down the mountain. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. We're going to divide this text into four parts. The command, the confusion, the question, and the clarification. The command, the confusion, the question, and the clarification. Let's start with the command there in verse 9. They're coming down the mountain, and Jesus issues them a command, a charge. That word is a strong word. He charged them. He commands them. They ought not to disobey this. Uh, He charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Don't tell anyone what you just saw. Don't tell anyone about this shining glory that you just saw me reveal to you. I don't want you to tell anyone. Uh, This would have been one of the most difficult commands, I think, in particular for Peter, who always is talking and always wants to share what he's thinking. Hey, Peter, you can't say anything about this. We're going down the mountain. I don't want you to tell anyone. This would have been an incredibly difficult time. But listen, they were not commanded to be silent about it forever. Do you see the until? Do you see that word there? Until, you've got to be quiet. When? Until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. That's when you can tell everyone. That's when you can tell everyone about who I am. You can tell everyone about what you saw on the mountain after I have risen from the dead. Now, they're not going to get it, but you might be asking again, and we've been talking about this recently, uh, because he's issued this command to silence again and again and again. You've noticed this? You read through Mark. He does a miracle. He tells the person that he just did the miracle to, don't tell anyone. Don't, don't spread this around. I don't want you to go spreading around uh, this miracle that I've been doing. This happens repeatedly, and you, we might be asking, why? Why? It's an important uh, explanation. Why should Jesus silence the people who are getting to know him best? Why The disciples who have a clearer picture of the identity of Christ, why should they be silent about it? Why doesn't he say, on the other hand, go tell everyone, now that you have an image of who I am, of the glory of my person, go tell everyone. Why doesn't he do that? Here's what's going on. What What did they know about Jesus so far? They knew he was an incredible teacher. They knew he had the power to heal. They knew about now his divine nature. That's becoming more and more clear. They know that he's the Messiah, the Christ. They just figured that one out. What are they really struggling with? His death and his resurrection. What if the disciples go out down from the mountain, they go into the villages, and they start telling everyone about the Christ who is God incarnate, who reveals His glory, who's a great teacher, who can heal, who can raise the dead. What if the disciples go spread that message? Let me ask you this. Would that be an accurate presentation of Jesus? We would say, accurate, but incomplete. It would be a Jesus who has not died, a Jesus who has not suffered, a Jesus then who has not rose from the dead, It therefore would be a half-Jesus because the whole point of the coming of Christ 
was that he would lay himself down as a sacrifice for the sins of his people so that God's wrath would be poured out on him on that cross rather than on God's people. And that he would rise from the dead and offer the salvation to everyone who understands, everyone who believes. Now listen, if all they do is tell that Jesus is God and he's a Messiah and he's a healer and he's a teacher, he, he's Messiah. Listen, they would be missing the gospel. They would be missing the point. It'd be like this. Imagine dad's at work and he's swamped. He's, he's really busy. And he calls home. And he's going to call home and he's going to... His plan is to say, I'm going to come home. I'm going to eat dinner with you, family. Uh, but then I've got to go back to the office and I've got to do more work. I've got to stay there late tonight. But I'm going to come home. I'll eat with you, but, but then I've got to go back. And, and he calls and the... One of the children picks up the phone. says, hey, Daddy. And the dad says, hey, I just want to let you know I'm going to come home and I'm going to eat with dinner with the family. And the kid goes, great, thanks. This is exciting. You're going to be home. All right, hey, Mom, Dad's coming home for dinner. He's going to be here. And he, she hangs up the phone. And she's all excited. She's waiting for Daddy to come home because she expects now that Daddy's going to be there the rest of the night. But what was the whole point of the call? It was to tell them, well, yeah, yeah that, that, that he is going to come home, but also that there's more to it that he's going to actually have to go back and that he's going to leave and that he's going to be at work in that night. The, the point is that if Jesus, the message about Jesus begins to be spread and all they're getting is half the message about his messiahship, about his divinity, about his teaching, about his healing, and they don't get his death and they don't get his resurrection, they're getting a half Jesus. Is that clear? Half Jesus is not what Jesus wants spread. He wants the full Jesus. He wants to, the message of the cross to be at the center of the proclamation of the work of Christ. I'm sure many of you have been in places where Jesus is talked about and Jesus is adored and Jesus is sung about and everyone loves talking about Jesus, but there's not much about a cross. There's not much about suffering. There's not much about blood atonement. There's not much about the wrath of God being poured out on the cross so the sinners can be saved. There's, there's nothing about that stuff. Uh, all that's talked about is this great teacher Jesus, this healer Jesus, this friend Jesus. And, and that's true, but it's not complete. And so this is a, a warning to the disciples first that they got to wait till they get the whole picture. And I take it as a warning for all Christians everywhere and all churches everywhere that we need to be diligent to understand the whole gospel. The whole gospel where there is a Savior who doesn't just come to heal and to teach. He's not just a teacher to enlighten you. He's not just an amazing miracle worker who can wow you. He is more than that. He is the, uh, the, the sacrificial lamb who is offered by God to be the payment for the sins of His people. That we cannot understand. Listen, we cannot understand Jesus Christ apart from His death and His resurrection. We cannot understand God apart from the fact that He sent His Son to die in our place and rise from the dead so that we can be saved. We do not want to be going around preaching a half gospel about a Jesus who does not suffer, about a Christ who does not die. We've got to go to the cross. We've got to preach a full Christ. We've got to preach a full gospel. And if the disciples were to just start pre preaching a gospel with no cross, there would be no gospel, actually. 
I was recently just reflecting on this and how often the cross is taken out of churches. And the first place you'll see that it starts to just poof, disappear, is often in the singing of a church. Pay attention to the the songs that a church sings. And I went and looked on the top three songs that were sung in churches. Just for my own curiosity, what is being sung in churches these days? The first three had no mention of a cross, no mention of the blood of Christ, no mention of the substitutionary atonement of Christ. And I thought, how often are we singing to Jesus and worshiping Jesus? You know, we, we are admiring His ability to heal and to work wonders. We are admiring all the things He has done. And we are leaving out the most central reality of His coming. That is His death and resurrection. They've got to be quiet until they get the whole picture. They've got to wait until He rises from the dead before they go. That's why he's telling them to be quiet. We, church, Grace Rancho, we want to be a church that preaches Christ crucified. Christ crucified in the place of those who deserve to die. Us, sinners, deserving to die. We worship a Messiah who came to suffer and die in our place. I like what Spurgeon said. The motto... Of all true servants of God must be we preach Christ and Him crucified. A sermon without Christ in it is like a loaf of bread without any flour in it. No Christ in your sermon, sir? Then go home and never preach again until you have something worth preaching. Right? We preach Christ. But not just Christ. We preach Christ crucified. And if we don't preach Christ crucified, if we preach a half-Jesus who never died, who didn't suffer, who didn't make atonement for our sins then we are not having anything worth preaching at all. We need to preach the whole gospel. So that's the command. they got to wait till the full revelation as they're coming down the mountain. And so let's move to the second point, point number two, the confusion. Verse, verse uh, 10 there. So they kept the matter to themselves. They're, they're wondering, okay, well, we can't talk about this, but they can talk about it together. It says, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Now, they're not going to ask Jesus about that. They're going to ask Jesus about something else. They're going to ask Jesus about Elijah. We'll get to that in a moment. But they're, they're wondering, what does this rising from the dead might mean? It's funny because he keeps talking about it, and he'll have to keep talking about it, but they're just not getting what it means to be risen from the dead. And the reality is, that it's not that they misunderstood the concept of resurrection. Uh, the, the Jews all believed in a resurrection. The, the book of Job in chapter 19, Job speaks about after his body is destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Uh, Job believed in the resurrection. Uh, the book of Daniel in chapter 12 spoke of the end times resurrection of the just and the unjust, the righteous and the wicked, the righteous to eternal glory, the unrighteous and the wicked to eternal judgment. This is all part of the Old Testament, and the Jews would have believed that. They understood it. They understood resurrection. They had actually seen resurrection, right? Jairus' daughter was raised from the dead. They did not have a problem with understanding the concept of resurrection. But they kept wondering, what does Jesus mean when he talks about rising from the dead? You know why they were wondering that? I think it's pretty simple. We don't have to overthink this one. Why did they have such a hard time understanding that Jesus would rise from the dead? Here's the answer. Because they had a hard time understanding that he would die. Remember, they just can't get this into their heads. That the Messiah must die. Uh, We really do, to understand this, have to put ourselves into their shoes. Because they're first century Jews. They had grown up on the Old Testament. They had heard the promises. Um, You go back to the very beginning. 
In chapter 3, the promise of the offspring of the woman who's going to crush the head of Satan. And then in chapter 12 of Genesis, the promise to Abraham that Abraham would become a nation and through that nation, all the nations of the world would be blessed. That's the Abrahamic covenant. And then you get to the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7. This promise that through the line of David there would come a king, a messiah, who would be the, the one who reigns forever, the one who establishes his everlasting kingdom, the, the one uh, that is awaited for, this long-awaited line of the king of David. And then you read the prophets and, and they're talking about this son of David who comes, the branch of David, the, the offshoot of the line of David. And everyone's waiting for the Davidic king to set up his Davidic kingdom. The one that will restore Israel and bless all the nations. And then this one comes and they finally go, You're the guy? You're the Messiah? You're the Christ? And he starts talking about suffering. And they just cannot get it, even to the point when Jesus is transfiguring. Remember, and Peter starts going, Hey, let's build some tents for you. Uh, We'll get this kingdom started right here, right now. We'll build the tents. You can start right here from the mountain. We'll start ruling right here. We'll establish our kingdom. They are not getting suffering. And that is why they can't get resurrection. They don't get suffering. You see, all through the Old Testament, there's this promise that this coming restoration was. Uh, It was around the corner and there's this messianic fever that they would come. There was this, the promise of restoration, by the way, let's just, Go over that real quick. In the Old Testament, was connected to. If you're taking notes, maybe write this, write this down. It was connected to this idea of the day of the Lord. You ever heard that one? The day of the Lord. The the, the readers of the Old Testament were anticipating that there would be a day where all the wickedness of the world would be judged, and the righteous people of God would be saved. There's two aspects to this coming day. That the son of David, the king would come, the the Messiah would come, and he would abolish his enemies, and he would establish his people. Isaiah chapter 2 mentions this day. It's the first place this day is mentioned. It says, The Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Verse 17, And the the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the, the Jews are awaiting this day, this day of the Lord where finally their people are saved, they're established in the land, the Messiah reigns, the wicked are judged. That's what they're waiting for. They cannot get this suffering. Why would they have to suffer? I thought the day of the Lord is about the enemy's suffering. What's going on? And so go back into Mark. Look at what they ask. And this is number three. This is the question. So they're, they're confused. And so they got this question. Verse 11. It says, And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Huh? So, okay. There's a day of the Lord. Um, and you're the Messiah who's supposed to bring in this day of the Lord. You're the Messiah who's supposed to come and bring judgment and salvation. You're the Christ. But I thought the scribes taught something about Elijah coming first. Any of you paying attention when Kent read Malachi 4? Let's go look at that real quick. Go back to Malachi, the very last book of the Old Testament. This is like 
the greatest cliffhanger, right? The very end of the Old Testament. And then silence from God. The prophets are speaking for God. They're speaking for God. And then poof, there's silence for God for 400 years until the coming of John the Baptist in the beginning days of the New Testament. But there's silence from God. And the last prophecy that kind of leaves people hanging here. Let's look at verse 1 of chapter 4 of Malachi. It says, For the day is coming. Well, what day is that? That's the day of the Lord. Burning like an oven, and when all the arrogant and the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. This is talking about that judgment that will come upon the enemies of God's people. But then he says, verse 2, But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. This is the salvation for God's people. You shall go leaping like calves from the stall. Never seen it, but it sounds fun. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. This day that's coming of salvation for God's people and of judgment for the wicked. And then there's two concluding statements that call to mind two important figures. Verse 4, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Oreb for all, peop- for all Israel. Remember his law. Remember God's law. Speaking through the prophet Moses, servant Moses. And then verse 5, look at this. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Silence. I mean, imagine those words ringing in your ears for 400 years as you wait the coming of the Messiah. What, what are they expecting? Who comes first? Who comes before the day of the Lord? Elijah. Elijah is one of the only, uh, there's only two guys in the Bible that escape death. One is Enoch in Genesis chapter 5. The other is Elijah. Elijah gets swept up by the chariots of fire and brought up into heaven. And here is this prophecy, this ancient Old Testament minor prophet prophecy. The last one before we get to the New Testament is, before the day of the Lord comes, there's going to be Elijah who returns. And Elijah is going to be this prophet. And Elijah is going to bring this restoration, the hearts of fathers to children and children to fathers. In other words, the most fundamental building block of the family is going to be restored by the coming of this prophet. Okay, so back to Mark. What's going on? What's going on? They're going, okay, Jesus, you say you're the Messiah. We see that you're glorious in the transfiguration. But hang on. The scribes say, Elijah's got to come first. Because that's what Malachi says. Before the day of the Lord, there's got to be Elijah, right? Don't they say that he comes first? It's a good question, right? Jesus, if you're the Messiah, did we miss Elijah? Was he around? Did we not? What happened to him? We were expecting him. And and if you're the Messiah, where did he go? What's going on here? And I think also part of their question is, if Messiah, or if Elijah does come, he brings restoration. Did you see that? He restores relationships. So if the Messiah is coming, why would he have to suffer if everything's fixed before he gets there? If, if, if Elijah does his job, Messiah is going to show up and he's going to be received by the people. But clearly, Jesus, you keep talking about dying. Why, why, what's going on here? So here's the clarification, number four. Jesus responds, 
He says, and he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. Right there, he affirms the validity, the literal uh, coming of Elijah. This is not some metaphor. This is not some spiritual thing. He's, he's saying, no, this is true. Elijah does come first to restore all things. Malachi was not lying. Malachi was prophesying. He told the truth, and Jesus affirms it, which, by the way, if you ever question the truthfulness of the Bible, the truthfulness of the Old Testament, you uh, look at Jesus. Jesus believed every word of it. Jesus believed every prophecy. He says, yes, Elijah does come first. But then look at Jesus' next statement. He says, and how is it written? He, he responds with another question. How is it written of the Son of Man, referring to that Messiah figure, the one who brings in the glorious kingdom, how is it written that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? So you're all caught up about what the Bible says about Elijah coming, but do you ever think about what it says about the Son of Man suffering? That's in there too. That's there. But I tell you, listen to this, Elijah has come. What? And they did him whatever they pleased as is written of him. What? Cryptic. Enigmatic. Puzzling, right? Let's go back and unpack what he's saying about the Son of Man suffering. It sounds like this is what he means. He's saying, disciples, listen. You got it right that Elijah had to come. You're right about that. That is what the scribes taught, and the scribes taught that because that is what Malachi said. But listen, you know what else the Old Testament says? It says the Son of Man has to suffer. Why are you so caught up in believing that the Messiah prof- or the, the Elijah prophecy? Why don't you also believe that the Messiah's got to suffer? That's there too. Don't you see that? But the disciples could not grasp the suffering Messiah. They just couldn't get it. Even in Paul's day, when, when Paul goes to write Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, remember what he says about the, the message of the cross being folly? Remember that? There's people who just don't get the message of the cross. And what he particularly says about Jews, he says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews. (laughs) Why didn't the Jews receive their Messiah when he came? Why still to this day are there Orthodox Jews who do not see Jesus as their Messiah? Why? Because he suffered and died. And they want a Messiah to come and establish a kingdom, which he will. But first he needed to suffer. And Jesus is saying, don't you understand that the Old Testament does say that the Son of Man suffers? Now you might be wondering, where does it say that? You wondering that? Yeah, some of you are wondering that. Where, where does it say that in the Old Testament that the Son of Man suffers? There's all kinds of promises about a kingdom and glory and everlasting righteousness being established. But, but the suffering Messiah? Isaiah 53. Turn there real quick. Isaiah 53. It's not the only place, but it's the clearest place. A remarkable chapter. This is a chapter that describes in stunning detail the death of Christ 700 years before it occurred. This is prophecy. And it's prophecy not only of what would happen to Jesus It's actually prophecy of what Israel will say when they come to recognize that they missed their Messiah. You could look at uh, verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And 
To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of the dry ground. He had no majesty or form that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus wasn't a good-looking guy that would draw attention. He wasn't a celebrity that would uh, draw the crowds just for his looks. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Look at this. What did he do? What does the coming Messiah do? What does the servant of the Lord do? What does the Son of Man do? Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. This is the prediction of the Old Testament that the Son of Man comes, the King of glory comes, God incarnate comes to His people and they see Him as something despicable, something that's like a curse. They hide their faces from Him. They don't want Him. They don't esteem Him at all. And what do they do? They kill Him. But in killing them, in killing Him, the Messiah offers Himself up and He takes upon Himself their griefs, their sorrows, their sins, their iniquities, their transgressions, and God is paying for their sins by letting them fall on His own Son. Look at verse 10. Skip down to verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. If you thought the cross was an accident, think again. This is the plan of the Father from eternity past to send His Son to redeem His people. And the Son willingly goes as the one who will make payment for the sins of His people. He will be, as we've been saying, the propitiation that He will offer Himself as the one that bears the wrath of the Father in the place of His people. That He will suffer and die And it is according to God's plan, God's will. It's not an accident. He's put to grief. He suffers. This is all part of the prophetic plan. The Son of Man must suffer. And friends, this is how we we glory every Sunday in the cross. Because what happened at the cross, if this did not happen, we are lost We are empty. We are guilty. We still carry that burden of guilt upon our own shoulders if there is no cross. But God sent His Son to take our sins upon Himself to suffer and die that we, the church, might be cleansed of our sins and forgiven of our debts. All of those things are paid. And now being clothed in the righteousness of the Messiah, uh, the righteousness of Christ, we are reconciled to God and enabled to have a relationship with Him. Because of what He has done. If you have not yet believed this, this is a free gift that you can receive by faith. And you can come to Him, trusting that His death pays for your sins. And that His life, His resurrection, is guaranteed that He is who He said He is. And He's going to make all His promises come to pass. And so go back to Mark. Go back to Mark. 
So, okay, I thought you said Elijah's going to come first. Jesus says he does come to restore all things. Yes, there is an Elijah who is to come. He will come before the great day of the Lord. But listen, the Son of Man also should suffer. That was also predicted in the Bible. Why don't you believe that? That's there also in Isaiah 53. It's very clear. So he's clarifying for them that Elijah must come, yes, but also you've got to understand the Messiah must suffer according to the prophecies of the Old Testament. And then he says, but I tell you, Elijah has come. Now, that's a past tense word, isn't it? He already came. Huh? He's going to come, but he has come. I tell you, Elijah has come, and they did to him, another past tense phrase there, they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Now, in Matthew, it's much more clear. Mark leaves you hanging a little bit. In Matthew, he makes it clear that the disciples knew exactly what Jesus was meaning when he said, Elijah has already come. You know who he's talking about? John the Baptist. So, huh? What? Huh? Where'd he come from? Elijah is John the Baptist in their minds, and they understood that immediately. He says he has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased. What'd they do to him, remember? Mark chapter 6, they killed him. They killed him because he's preaching a message of righteousness that Herod and Herodias and Herodias' daughter didn't want anything to do with. And he schemed and hatched a plot to get him killed and they beheaded him. They did to him whatever they pleased. That's what he's saying. He, He did come. They did not receive him. They did not listen to him. John, the Baptist, listen to this, is a kind of Elijah. Like a, in fact, there's all kinds of evidences in the New Testament that make this kind of obvious. In Luke chapter 1, when Elizabeth is pregnant with Elijah, you know what the angel says? Is that your son will be John and he will come in the spirit and power of Elijah. He's going to turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. That's what John is going to do. Here's another interesting one that's just kind of help you make the connection. What's the first thing you always learn about John the Baptist when you learn about him in Sunday school? You, You always learn about the weird clothing that he wore. Like he had a, a, a camel's hair shirt. Any camel's hair shirts in here? And we bring your camel hair. And then you had this leather belt. All, it's like always, it's like the first thing you need to know about John is what he wears. It's like, why? But you know why? Because expressly in Second Kings 1.8, when uh, Elijah is being described, he's described like this. He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. In other words, the New Testament writers are describing the clothing of John so that they in their minds will associate him with Elijah. That's, that's what they're, they're trying to do. He's going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. He's going to look like Elijah. He's going to come preaching to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. That's what John's going to do. And then John appears. He starts preaching, and he's preaching a day of the Lord type sermon. Fire, brimstone, repentance. He's preaching all this stuff. In other words, John is functioning like an Elijah for the first coming of Christ. He's functioning very much as the prepare the way of the Lord kind of figure. And so when when Jesus says Elijah has come, he's saying uh, that the role of Elijah has happened already in in the coming of John the Baptist. That John the Baptist had the Elijah role to prepare the way for the first coming of Christ. But he uh, will come. The true Elijah will come at the very end. And when he comes, he will make way for the coming of the Messiah. And when the Messiah comes, he will bring salvation to his people. 
and judgment upon his enemies. This again is highlighting the reality that the righteous suffer. Elijah came. It was John the Baptist. And you remember what they did to him? That's like what Jesus is saying. He did come, and they rejected him. The, the forerunner to the Messiah came, and they killed him. What do you think will happen to the actual Messiah? In other words, he's preparing them again that the Messiah must suffer because it was so difficult for them to get it. Let me put together some of these strands, and we'll wrap it up with some application. Four, four points of application here. Real quick, number one, the cross must be central in our lives, in our thinking, in our relationship to God, in our church, in our preaching. If the cross and the resurrection is not central, we will have a warped picture of Jesus. If He's primarily a healer, primarily a wonder worker, primarily a Messiah, but we eliminate the cross, we are misunderstanding Him and His main purpose in coming. When you pray, remember the cross. When we sing, we're going to remember the cross. When we encourage one another, we're going to remember the cross. We're going to put the cross in the center. It'll help us understand God, ourselves, our Savior, our lives, better when we understand the cross. Secondly, we must also embrace that the ways of God are often perplexing, aren't they? Here's going to come a Messiah. He's going to establish a kingdom, but he's got to die. How often in our lives are we thinking, this is what needs to happen, and this is how it's going to happen, and God doesn't do it that way at all that the way to blessing will come through being humbled, that the way to glory will come through pain. We are often very perplexed at the paths that God leads us down. It is not because He's not in control. It's not because He's turned away and He forgot about you. This is part of His story. And if the Messiah suffers, all those who follow Him will follow Him on their Calvary road. We will take up our crosses. We will deny ourselves. And we might be perplexed, but we will not despair. Because at the end, the story turns out with, for the glory of God and for the well-being of us, His people. We may be perplexed, but God has infinite wisdom and infinite resources on unlimited perspectives. All of our lives are like a puzzle piece and we look at it and we get confused. It doesn't make any sense. We don't see how it fits. And in the end, we will put it into that big, grand, glorious puzzle that God has been creating from the foundation of the world. And we will see, oh, that's where I fit. But until then, it, we will be perplexed. Number three, the Word of God is always true. Always true. The Old Testament prophecies that you've forgotten about, God has not forgotten about. God will bring every word to pass. Not a single prophecy will fall to the ground unfulfilled at the end of time. Everything that God says will happen will happen. Take it to the bank. Take it to Him and remember before your Lord that God, you have made promises. And remind yourself, remind your soul that those promises will come to pass. His Word is true. 
All of it's true. All of it is without error. All of it is infallible. All of it is authoritative. All of it is sufficient. Read it. Study it. Soak in it. Let it change your heart, change your mind, change your perspective. We need the Word of God. It will never let us down. Study it afresh. Study the parts that are hard. Wrestle with those things you don't quite understand. Go back to the Word of God. As it is written, it comes up a few different times in this section. We need to remember what is written in the Word of God. Number four, the suffering of God's people will not thwart His plan to bring about His salvation and His judgment. The suffering that you will experience is not a detour from the plan. It's part of the plan. The suffering of the Messiah was not an accident. It was a strategy. And so it is with all of Christ's followers. Your suffering is not an accident. It is a strategy. It's God's strategy to show His magnificent worth. If our lives are always posh, easy, comfortable, then the watching world will say the reason they love God is because their lives are posh, easy, and comfortable. God is not glorious in and of Himself. God is a means to get the comforts of the world. But when everything is stripped away, and you say to God, you are enough for me, you are a treasure for me, that I might have nothing, but in having you I am rich, that shows the world that Christ is glorious. Suffering is not a detour, it's part of the plan. When we suffer for the glory of God, we deny ourselves for the glory of God, we are demonstrating that Christ is the greatest treasure of all. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word that reminds us of all these things. Thank you for holding the wind so that we could hear. I pray that we would hear and respond. Uh, Respond the way you want us to, with faith, with repentance if necessary, with diligence to obey. Lord, that you would pull away distractions and hindrances that we face that stop us from obeying you. I pray even, Lord, that you would strip us of excuses and that we would recommit afresh to your word, to following you, even to suffering if necessary for your name's sake. Help us, Lord, in this. In Jesus' name, amen.